this podcast, head of school Carol Maos speaks to parents about empathy at the annual Parents' Night and Fall Dinner. I want to start by thanking Bonnie Mosquitz and Christine Kim for their incredible work in organizing and preparing for this Parent Night Dinner. And thank you to all those who helped set up, and I'm sure will help clean up as well. So thank you. A big thank you to Allison Dorenzi and Francesco DeMori for the delicious dinner. We are grateful to you and to Lorcho. <laughs> I also want to thank Danielle Gennetti and John Gennetti for the wonderful Foot Family Fun Day this past Sunday, including a barbecue and a bouncy castle water slide. Um, I think a new tradition was born that day. Uh, and it was so much fun, and we're very grateful for their generosity and for their hard work. <laughs> and finally, a thank you to the PTC and to the development office staff, who always jump in to help, for all your hard work last year, building community and raising funds. Together, the PTC raised $60,000. Thanks. Thanks to the PTC's hard work and your generosity, these funds will support things like trips at every grade level, campus beautification, summer read aloud books, professional development for faculty and staff, attendance at the People of Color Conference, diversity training, ruler training, and outdoor education. Thank you all so much. We are truly grateful and imagine what we can accomplish when everyone volunteers three plus hours. <clears throat> Over the past 10 years at Parents' Night, I've asked you to draw a self-portrait, raise your hand if you were here for that, to breathe slowly and rhythmically for a couple of moments for mindfulness. I've asked you how much time your children spend in non-structured, non-adult organized play. I've asked you what the most stressful thing is in your life and what makes you nervous as a parent. I've asked you if you agree with the statement you can learn new things, but you can't really change how intelligent you are. I've cited research and recommended books and shared advice from our children in their own words. I've spoken with immense pride and gratitude about the work we all do at this wonderful school. Hopefully over the course of my 10 and now 11 years at foot, I've challenged you and supported you in our partnership in raising and educating children. We have one more year together, and I know it's going to be a great one. So tonight, once again, I've chosen a topic that I believe is essential and that just may challenge some of our thinking. Tonight, I'm going to talk about empathy. What is empathy and how does one develop it? The most widely used definition is the capacity to understand or feel what another person is experiencing, to sense other people's emotions, coupled with the ability to imagine what someone else might be thinking or feeling. We sometimes say, put yourself in someone else's shoes, or the line from Sharon Creech's book, Walk Two Moons, don't judge a man until you've walked two moons in his moccasins. Last year, we changed the E in Falco's pride to stand for empathy, a reflection of how important we think it is. Psychologists have gone as far as defining three kinds of empathy, cognitive, emotional, and compassionate. Cognitive empathy entails knowing how a person feels and what she or he may be thinking. Emotional empathy 
involves feeling physically alongside that person as if her emotions were contagious. You can imagine that brought to an extreme, this isn't always helpful because it makes it harder to help the person get through a tough time when you take on their emotions as yours. We've talked about this in past years in terms of taking on our children's hurt rather than helping them work through it. Our children don't need us to be sad with them or to cry with them. They need us to help them figure out how to deal with what they're struggling with. The third type of empathy is compassionate empathy or empathic concern. With this kind of empathy, we not only understand a person's predicament and feel with them, but we're moved to help if needed. In 2010, the University of Michigan conducted a study that analyzed data on empathy among 14,000 college students over the prior 30 years. They found the biggest drop in empathy after the year 2000. The research showed that college students in 2010 were about 40% lower in empathy than their counterparts 20 and 30 years prior, as measured by standard tests of this personality trait. In another meta-analysis, combining results of 72 different studies of American college students, they found that college students in 2010 were less likely to agree with statements such as, I sometimes try to understand my friends better by imagining how things look from their perspective. And I often have tender, concerned feelings for people less fortunate than me. And while these studies are eight or nine years old, there have been no new studies that contradict this extensive data. So why is empathy declining? Well, there certainly could be several reasons, including, but probably not limited to, the amount of media the average American consumes, exposure to violent media and video games, the rise of social media, and the hyper-competitive atmosphere and expectations of success. Perhaps people are so busy worrying about themselves and their own issues that they don't have time, or at least they don't perceive that they have time, to spend empathizing with others. Empathy is related to a concept called theory of mind. And theory of mind is the human capacity to comprehend that other people hold beliefs and desires that are different from one's own beliefs and desires. Now, I think that most of us would agree that the political polarization in our country seems pervasive. It seems hard for people to appreciate or even understand that other people's opinions have value. When we watch the news, which some of us find ourselves avoiding, or engage in social media, it feels like people are more divided than they've ever been. How accurate is this? The Atlantic Magazine used the polling firm PredictWise to learn more about partisan prejudice. That is, people who are prejudiced against others who have opinions that differ greatly from their own. They specifically wanted to find out if there was variation by counties in the United States. Which of these populations would you predict have the highest level of partisan prejudice or the least tolerance for those with different views? Is it A, counties with a large population of college students? B, rural farm communities? Or C, an urban, highly educated population? Well, the results are fascinating and, in my mind, somewhat counterintuitive. The polls showed that the most politically intolerant locales tend to be populated by individuals who are highly educated, older, and more urban than others. In fact, in an earlier study by the University of Pennsylvania, they covered simil uncovered similar findings. 
highly educated people are relatively isolated from political diversity. They don't routinely talk with people who disagree with them. This isolation makes it easier for them to caricature those who have ideologies that are different from their own beliefs. The Atlantic Magazine reported that one of the least politically polarized and least politically prejudiced places in America is Jefferson County, New York. To understand the reasons behind this, a reporter spent time in Watertown, New York, which is in Jefferson County, it's right on the border of Canada, meeting with residents with differing political opinions. The population of Jefferson County is diverse and skews younger than other counties. The reporter found that at the root of their tolerance was something very basic and sadly increasingly rare in our digital society. They spend time face to face. There were a number of examples in the article. One of the Watertown ministers holds a weekly breakfast in which men at opposite ends of the political spectrum read books and talk together. The minister said that the success in getting polarized groups together is face-to-face -face meetings and good food. The second secret, according to the minister, is to talk for a long time. He says, we talk about it long enough until we realize how much we don't know. Once you realize how much you don't know, the honest conversation comes out. The men's breakfast is slow and personal, a stark contrast to the fast-paced digital society of today. So let's see how well you know Americans and their digital habits. Please take a white piece of paper from the center of your table and a pencil. <coughs> and you're going to use those left boxes, the boxes on the left first. And the first question is, What percentage would you say of people would rather communicate digitally than in person? Just write a percentage in that first box. What percentage of people would rather communicate digitally than in person? Now I have to just, a sidebar here is that my husband does this to me all the time. He sits with the New York Times, he reads, he's an article, and he's like, what would you say? What percentage of the people do this? And he thinks I'm, I, like, I actually get them right. I don't know why. I'm not really sure why, but it is an interesting question. The second question, what percentage of cell phone owners find themselves checking their device even when it's not ringing or vibrating? You can, of course, ask these questions about yourself. All right, you're writing a percentage in there. And the third one. In your opinion, what percentage of people admit to hiding from family and friends to check social media? <coughs> all right, so you all have your answers written down. According to the site Digital Detox, 50% of people would rather communicate digitally than in person. And 67% of cell phone owners check their device even when it's not ringing or vibrating. <laughs> and finally, 
Just before you, I give you this answer. Raise your hand if you check your social media when no one's looking. Uh, yeah. 33% <laughs> of people admit to hiding from family and friends to check social media. These are statistics. These are statistics worth reflecting on for ourselves as well as for our children. Of course, the Breakfast Club is just one of the factors that makes Jefferson County one of the least politically prejudiced places in the United States. What else is notable about the people there? Well, they're more likely to know each other and interact with people who have different political views than they do. They can't just look past one another. In the words of the people in the community, and these two are truly my favorite quotes, snark and rage hold no currency. In fact, they lower the odds that your neighbor will loan you an ice scraper when yours breaks, or bring you soup when your spouse is sick. And remember where Jefferson County is. You need that scraper all the time. But size doesn't explain everything either. The city council there has been nonpartisan for years since the residents voted to kick political parties out of their local affairs. And because they have a military base in their town, the average age is lower, and in general, youth correlates with open-mindedness. The debate there is less binary. While people disagree completely on issues as diverse as the nomination of Supreme Court justices, topics like abortion, but there's no lingering animosity among coworkers and friends. And finally, people are more likely to be married to someone with wildly different political viewpoints. According to Predict Wise, about one in every four couples is politically mixed. That really, that was something that was in, really interesting to me. By contrast, in Suffolk County, which includes Boston, and ranked the most politically intolerant county in the analysis, only one in every 10 couples is politically mixed. Now, some of you may be thinking, what's she talking about? No way is Upper New York State more tolerant than Boston. But political tolerance is not the same as other forms of tolerance. I mean, not surprisingly, there is more discrimination in small rural towns than in urban areas. But there's also more room for civil discourse for listening to different points of view. And in the words of lawyer, author, and activist Brian Stevenson, to get proximate. Steven says there's, Stevenson says there's power when we get proximate. And only then can we have mercy and compassion. Are there other ways to develop empathy? Well, the predominant view is that literary fiction that focuses on in-depth portrayals of characters' innermost feelings and thoughts can help develop empathy. Researchers at the New School in New York City conducted a study that involved having people read different types of literature or not read at all, and subsequently measuring their ability to infer and understand other people's thoughts and emotions. The researchers found significantly higher scores among those who read literary fiction. They found that the rich character development undermined and disrupted prejudices and stereotypes. The idea of reading together Getting proximate and looking at life through experiences of others is what we do at foot every day. And this begins with kindergarten and goes all the way up through ninth grade. 
Students are reading books and listening to books with characters from different countries who speak different languages, who learn differently, who have a host of different family structures, whose life experiences, perspectives, opinions, and points of view vary greatly. Paired with rich classroom discussions facilitated by our teachers, the characters portrayed elicit empathy in ways that would not only surprise you, but would also make you extremely proud. I have the wonderful opportunity of reading a novel to the sixth grade each year, and with Trevor Res Rosenthal's help, I choose carefully, always with an eye toward empathy. Last year, and this year, last year I read this book, I'll read it again this year, it's called No Fixed Address. It's about a homeless boy and his mom. It disrupted so many stereotypes. And I also read All Rise for the Honorable Perry T. Cook, written by a local Guilford author, a story about a child who grew up in a minimum security prison. In each case, students asked thoughtful questions, made insightful comments, and were faced with trying to experience the world through a different lens. So back to that Atlantic Magazine article. You might be wondering, how does New Haven score when it comes to political polarization or partisan prejudice? So just for fun, how politically open-minded do you think New Haven County is? The way the percentages work is this. If a county rates at 80%, it means that only 20 out of every 100 counties are more prejudiced against the political other. So the lower the percentage, the less politically prejudiced the county is. So on your paper in that open box, jot down how you think New Haven County ranks. High score intolerant, low score tolerant. <laughs> ah, you're looking at those. <laughs> so just to say, this is, um, you can easily access this. It's an interactive map. It's totally cool. You just go right over each county in the United States, and you can see what their score is. So you've all had a chance to write. You all have guessed about New Haven, right? All right. So before we look at New Haven, let's look at a couple of others. Let's start with uh, Broward County in South Florida. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Zero out of every hundred counties are more intolerant than them. Let's move over to Barnstable County in Massachusetts. Ninety-nine percent. Only one out of every 20 are more tolerant. And then let's go to New Haven. 85. So just if you gave it a higher score, go like this. If you gave it a lower score, go like this. At Foot, we're teaching empathy every day through face-to-face -face conversations, through literature, by leaning in to tough conversations. It is our hope that we can work toward a more respectful, less polarized, and more empathic society. As I complete my last parents' night talk at foot, I wanted to share a few personal words. As you might imagine, entering my 11th and final year in this community is a bittersweet experience, and I am experiencing many lasts. The last opening faculty and staff meeting, which is always quite a production, and which Julian made so memorable. The last first day of school at foot, which is so very special 
And tonight, my last opportunity to address this incredibly intelligent and receptive group of parents. As I walked through the campus on the first few days of school, I was struck for the thousandth time how beautiful it is here and how lucky we all are, students, parents, faculty, and staff, to have the opportunity to learn and grow with such talented and committed people in such a beautiful environment with such rich resources. The freedom our children have to move about, to enjoy nature every day, and to pursue their dreams, it is highly unusual, and it is truly priceless. There's much work to be done this year, and I look forward to working together as we have for the past 10 years. Foote's next head of school will inherit a wonderful school and a beautiful community. Thank you so very much. I am truly grateful for the opportunity to get to know you and your children. Foot Podcasts are a production of the Foot School, an independent school for grades K through nine located in New Haven, Connecticut. Visit us online at footschool.org.